Thank you, Brother Mark. Thank you, uh, Brandon and Bryant. Thank you for your worship. What a joy to be with you here. Green Street, uh, Street to be back here. I was here a number of years ago. Did a prayer weekend, I think, uh, with uh, Bob and Phyllis Foy. Boy, that was a long time ago. <laughs> time fleets away, doesn't it? But uh, very grateful for the privilege to come and share God's word with you this weekend. Uh, <clears throat> I want us to pray. Uh, so take a few moments and uh, just bow. Prepare our hearts. You know, uh, I love Isaiah 55, 6. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Uh, it tells me something. It tells me that there may come a time when he might not be found. That ought to scare the life out of every one of us. So may we truly be a people that get serious about seeking the Lord. I pray you'll be encouraging your heart this weekend to do that. We must unite our hearts as God's people in this day and this hour to seek him. He is our answer, y'all. There's no other answer. Jesus is our answer. So, in past generations, God's people have gotten serious. And they have united and they have sought him. And he has heard. So let's bow our hearts and say, Lord, uh, may my heart be where it needs to be as we share together in your word. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the privilege of prayer. God, what an honor to come before you, our great and holy God, and to be able to call upon your name, to be able to seek you and find you, Lord, when we search for you with all of our hearts. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you. And we bow before you as your servants here today. We ask of you that you will speak. You're a speaking Lord. You reveal yourself to us. And we cry out, uh, cry out as the Psalter did. Reveal your work to us, your servants. Your majesty to their children. Lay your hand of favor upon us, O Lord. Oh, Father, confirm the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Lord, rend the heavens and come down. 
Wilt thou not thyself revive us again? And we thy people shall rejoice in thee. Lord, you tell us that we will find you when we search for you with all of our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that in this day and this hour, we would see the signs of the times and we would be a people who would unite our hearts together in one accord prayer to seek you, dependent and desperate for what only you can do, oh Lord. Lord, may it happen. And may you start it right here at Green Street Church. I can think of no other place, no better place. It's got to start somewhere, Lord. Why not right here? And so, oh Lord God of Israel, we come seeking you with all of our hearts. Speak. Speak, oh Lord, we pray. For we, your servants, listen. And we make this prayer in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to uh, Acts, the the book of Acts. And we're going to put in this morning, uh, beginning in Acts chapter 2. Uh, We're going to look at uh, a couple of texts uh, in uh, this great uh, first little part of the book of Acts. Uh, But I've got to do a a little introduction before we move into this text. Uh, As you look at revival and spiritual awakening, one of the things that you notice is that it is God's redemptive and holy work among his people, first and foremost. Just as the judgment of God comes, uh, first to the people of God, so does revival come. Revival is for his people. Uh, Spiritual awakening, God's people can be awakened uh, in the midst of revival, awakened to their sin, awakened to their need to, uh, to, to journey out of an apathetic state. They can be awakened to the need to be witnesses uh, to the lost. But revival and awakening begins with the people of God. It's got to start with us. Uh, and spiritual awakening, though, is a season and a time when God moves beyond the church to a culture, to a community, to a, to a, a region, to a country, to multiple countries, when he pours out his Holy Spirit and he sends a great awakening of his spirit in the hearts of lost people. And there is, as Paul prayed in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 forward, that there is a, there begins to be a rapid running of the gospel among the lost. So when we pray, 
Oftentimes, we'll use these terms, revival and spiritual awakening, interchangeably. Uh, but really, if you, if you want to be technical about it, revival is for the church, a time of great renewal and re-energizing, a time when God's people return to, his, uh, to him in godliness and in holiness and, and are renewed and revitalized. Churches are revitalized and they are changed and they are set on mission again. Spiritual awakening is something that happens in the broader culture. And people who haven't had an interest in the gospel are suddenly, by the Spirit of God that's unleashed, because his people are revived and they become hot-hearted to share the gospel, they are anointed with a special movement of the Spirit of God and the manifest presence of God working through their lives. When that happens, the culture begins to stand up and take notice that God is alive in Jesus Christ. And there becomes this, this movement of the Holy Spirit that begins to sweep people into the kingdom of God. And it's, a, it's happened at least four times in the life of this nation. Uh, there have been pervasive movements. Four times, the first great awakening uh, took place in 1732 to 1767, one of the leaders of that awakening was Jonathan Edwards, a pastor theologian in the Connecticut River Valley. Uh, God began a movement there in the Connecticut River Valley. It swept southward and eastward and it, <laughs> it, it consumed the colonies. It ended up in a church planting movement, which is really interesting to me, uh, that uh, was, was greatly fanned and, and the flames of revival and spiritual awakening and church planting uh, were, were, were taken through uh, a church not too far from here uh, in the Sandy Creek Baptist Church, Shubal Stearns and pastor, and uh, uh, that church was responsible for at least 43, I would say, 42, 43 congregations, either as a mother church or a grandmother to that church. And so it's quite interesting how God ended. And, and, those, and those church plants were, were uh, they took place in North Carolina, in South Carolina, in Georgia, uh, a tremendous move of God. Of course, it waned. Uh, you had the American what? Civil War, I mean, the American Revolutionary War that uh, began and, and the spiritual thermometer waned. And the French came and brought the Enlightenment theories and the college campuses became very humanistically oriented, uh, very uh, much uh, pagan. Uh, and even colleges and universities that were set aside to train ministers. And so in 1787, you had students on college campuses who were Christians having to, having to hide to have Bible studies and prayer times. In fact, not too far from here at Hampton Sydney College, 
up in uh, Farmville, Virginia, if you've ever been there, up Highway 15, I believe. Uh, there was, a, there was a, um, a group of students who started praying, and they were, they were ridiculed by the other students. And, and the president got word of it, and he said, well, why don't you come into my study, and we'll pray together, and you'll be safe there. You won't be ridiculed. And so they did, and revival broke out in the president's study. And the lives of those students and the president it spread on the campus. Campus, it spread from the campus to churches and into the community. And the second great awakening had uh, begun. And uh, simultaneously in other different uh, places uh, across the East Coast, uh, you had colleges being revived, the uh, Oberlin College, and you had, uh, which became the Williams College, and, and you had the Haystack Revival in the early 1800s where uh, we can trace the, the, the modern student volunteer movement that took place, sent thousands upon thousands of students to the mission field from America. And so, uh, it's quite interesting when you see that kind of movement. All, both of those were permeated with uh, God's word and they were permeated with prayer. It was, it was very, very pervasive and it began to spread. Uh, the second great awakening spread into the communities and urban areas. It spread west. You had your camp meetings that sprung up. Uh, one of the most notable, the Cane Ridge uh, Revival Camp Meeting that took place on, in there in Kentucky uh, on the Cane Ridge that didn't have water. Isn't that funny? It didn't have water. They, they, had, to, they had to haul in water to the people. Now, you say, how many people came to that revival? Probably about 25,000 people. There were seven preaching stations and the Spirit of God moved and, and worked in a powerful way. The Second Great Awakening uh, kind of ended on the note of the urban prayer, uh, urban prayer revivals and revival it protracted meetings by Charles Finney uh, in about 1843. And then you had um, a bunch of different things begin to happen in the life of this nation. Uh, you had a thing called Millerism, which... Uh, was an end of time kind of desire by people. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> they began to get caught up in that. I mean, I'm talking significant numbers of Christians in the Northeast um, in the mid 1840s. Then you had what happened in 1849. It's very significant. The gold rush, the gold rush. But what did, it, what did it do to the, the spiritual environment of this country? What, what became the focus of everybody? They wanted to get rich quick. And it bled into the churches. Churches became apathetic and complacent and very worldly. Uh, the church was dealing with, in that time, the element of, uh, because of the westward push, the element of 
immigrants coming in. <laughs> they didn't know how to deal with the world religions that were being confronted with. Uh, the, the political environment was very, very volatile between the Republicans and the Democrats. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then the, the, the social environment. What was happening at that time? The issue of what? Slavery. And so you had all that brewing in the life of this nation. And it created an environment uh, where the spiritual life was, was waning in the life of the church. And so in 1857, there was a bank crash, uh, kind of a uh, big bank crash that took place in, in Manhattan, a uh, bank crisis. But before that, just before that, a little Dutch Reformed church in downtown Manhattan had hired a young man by the name of Jeremiah Lampfear to come and to to help them reach out to the community. The church was dying. The community was dying. Uh, they were struggling big time. And so he began to go door to door. He began to, uh, to share the gospel. Nothing happened. After about three weeks or so, he began to, to seek the Lord. He said, what do I need to do? And God took him outside the church and showed him all these people going up and down the streets to meetings. And he said, I want you to start a noonday prayer meeting. There are Christians in those. They'll come to a noonday prayer meeting. And so he did. He, he passed out thousands of little flyers inviting them to come. And on September 23rd, 1857, the third story Sunday school room, Fulton Street, uh, Reformed Church there, Dutch Reformed Church. Jeremiah Lamphere showed up and he was the only one there. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, Brother Mark had been kind of like, you gave all this promotion and everything, and then when we showed up this morning, we were the only ones here, right? You know? You're like, uh-oh. But after 30 minutes, six people showed up. The next week, 10 people showed up. The next week, 30 people showed up. The next week, 50 people showed up. And in six months, there were 10,000 people gathering in prayer meetings in Manhattan. Now, y'all, I'm telling you, <laughs> when, when 10,000 people get serious about prayer, something's going to happen. And so that's exactly what took place. And, in, and most, uh, many scholars will say that there were some 50,000 people within the first six months gathering in all the boroughs together. Now, that's interesting. It spread to other cities all over. There was this, this cloud of the presence of God. Let me tell you, those prayer meetings, you know, you would think those prayer meetings were something you would think that those prayer meetings would be just wide open, you know, going hours and hours. Those prayer meetings were very structured. They were 55 minutes long. There were signs that said, you can't pray more than five minutes or you'll be called down. 
And you have to focus. They focused on the kingdom issues. The lost. The wayward. And they did. The Spirit of God just came. And people would leave those prayer meetings weeping because of the presence of God. And, and God would show up in such a way when they left, they were looking for somebody to share Christ with. They were looking to start evangelistic meetings in the evenings, and they did. And in the, in the first, in the, those two years, there were over a million people converted to Christ in a population of 30 million people in our country. And so that's spectacular, that's amazing. That's God. But there was this manifest presence. The USS North Carolina was docked in the harbor there. He was a, it was a naval receiving ship. And so the, it was quite amazing. They had sailors there from all over who would come in, be retrained, and sent to their new assignments. And when, that, when, when three sailors were impacted by the prayer meetings, they went back to their ship, the USS North Carolina, and they began a prayer meeting down in the kind of the gallows. And, and pagan sailors heard, heard them singing and praising the Lord. They went down the stairwell. When they entered the room, they were so convicted by the presence of God that they fell on their faces, were converted to Christ, and over a hundred sailors over the next three days were converted to Jesus. and sent out to ports all around the world compliments of Uncle Sam. Only God can do that. And the impact of that great, great movement called the Layman's Prayer Revival, 1857 50 to 59 Layman's Prayer Revival, uh, was that it bled over into the Civil War. And there were some 300, you don't read this in the history book, and there are a few uh, 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 monographs that have recorded this. But uh, over 300 to 350,000 soldiers were converted to Christ in camp meetings in the, in, in the Union and Confederate armies. Is God not merciful? And, and then we have the fourth movement. We have the Worldwide Awakening. It began in 1901. Uh, and it, it was worldwide. It, uh, well, the, the biggest, probably the most notable movement took place in Wales. Uh, the Great Welsh Revival, 1904 to 1906, in that period of time. That's where you hear the stories of the Shetland ponies in the mines having to be retrained uh, from having the commands, they were cursed and, and commanded to do the, the chores that they did. They had to be retrained because the miners no longer cursed. The policemen were on the street corners forming quartets because they didn't have anything to do. Our law enforcement officers, and some are here, 
Boy, wouldn't that be a blessing? Wouldn't you like to stand on the street corner and sing and not have to deal with crime? Magistrates wore white gloves, which means they had nothing to try. There was a a tremendous move. In six months, there were over 100,000 people in Wales converted to Christ. It it, it was just phenomenal. But but, uh, in America, there were over 2 million people in the first five years converted to Christ. There were were cities, listen, y'all, there were cities in America like Denver and Seattle. Think about that now. But Denver and Seattle, where, where they would close down businesses in the middle of town, businesses would close down to let their people go to prayer meetings and evangelistic meetings. God did that right before the great and terrible world, world war that struck our world. It hit five, six continents, this movement of God. Tremendous millions and millions of people converted to Christ. We haven't seen anything pervasive since then. We've seen the Jesus movement, which I believe personally in 70 to 73 could have been, but the church squelched it because the church didn't want the long-haired hippies in their churches. And, and you did see a significant mid-century resurgence, especially among evangelicals like ministries like Billy Graham, Campus Crusade, others, uh, where they were revitalized during that time. But since then, though, y'all, really, there's only been little volcanic eruptions, little regional, little local church uh, kind of movements of God. We're way overdue. But those are moments when God seasons, when God sends revival among his people. And so I've categorized these movements uh, historically and biblically into three different seasons. In the scriptures, there are three kinds of time. There's eternal time. There is... um, chronological historical time, chronos. Uh, God started it, and one day God's going to what? He's going to end it. He's the alpha and the omega. Yeah, y'all have been in church. Y'all have heard that phrase. So, uh, but there's a third time, and it's, it's called kairos time. And that's when you begin to get this this, this season of, of revival and awakening, that's when you see it happening. Kairos time is God's opportune time. It's when God reaches into chronological historical time and he works supernaturally. And that's quite interesting because he does it with his people. He, he will reveal himself to his people. He will uh, bring about a confession of sin. He will direct their steps and their paths. He will... He, he will uh, Uh, answer their cries for his mercy. Uh, He he will send revival. He will send an awakening in their area. 
and so you see these periods of time throughout history and in scripture uh, in those three seasons of, of what we call Kairos time. So when God reaches in and he, he works supernaturally, just as he did in those awakenings I shared with you about. Now, there are three seasons when God moves related to prayer. And I want you to get these because they're going to drive these three sessions. Now, I'm going to get to Acts 2. Just hang on. But you got, we got to start here. <clears throat> the first one is where Acts comes in. It's when God's people are dependent upon him in prayer. It's, it's a very, it's that season that prayer is more than just something that they do. It's something that they are. It is a part of their DNA. It's their, it's their lifeline. Prayer is, is who they are as the people of God. They don't they're not just necessarily doing it because it's scheduled on Wednesday night or uh, on Tuesday morning or what, but they're doing it because it is who they are. It is their first response. It is their overall response. It, is, it permeates their lives. Prayer is their life. And that was a first century church. And we'll look at that here in just a moment. The second season is, is, is when God's people are desperate in prayer for him. This desperation uh, is, is a part of their, the calamity that comes upon them because they have sinned and departed from him. Desperation flows out of God's discipline, God's squeezing God's calamity, uh, God, God saying to them, I'm not pleased with you. You'll see that so often in the scriptures and God's people, he brings fear uh, to his people because he's not pleased with them. They have departed from him. They have started following pagan idols and mixed with the culture and they have, uh, they have truly not stood upon his word and, and he has to discipline them. So that's a, that's the second season when they become desperate. The third season is he sends this Kairos revival and awakening when God's people have been devastated by him. They've sent and been sent into exile uh, and a remnant is revived and renewed and they brought out uh, brought, uh, they're, they're wakened up out of the ashes of their lives. Uh, and um, similar to what happened in China, uh, if you'll remember the, the church in China, when China closed in 1950, there were only a million believers. Even after 150 years of missionary activity there, there were only about close to a million believers there. But in 1970, when it reopened, there were five million. But now there are probably over 130 million. Out of that time of devastation and persecution and, and um, God's people becoming desperate for him. 
but being devastated by him. I mean, a lot of the church leaders were, were, were killed or, or, in, or imprisoned or whatever during that 20-year period, and it was awful. It, it, was, it was terrible. But the leaders will tell you out of China that they, out of the ashes, God has raised up a, a great movement through a remnant of his people. And we do not want that to happen, y'all. Everybody, everybody, I, I hear, I hear pastors, I hear some, some leaders will say, what we need is a good dose of persecution. You don't know what you're asking for. You better be careful. Don't be so spiritually arrogant to think that you would be the one that would stand during that time. That's dangerous. And so we've got to be careful with that. But during the season of Kairos time, God will reach down and out of devastation and raise up a, a revived people that will be so hot-hearted for him and they'll be on fire. And there will be a rapid run into the gospel. So you've got those three seasons. This morning as we begin this, this or we're in this first session, we look at the dependence. Because we're not there. I'll just say that. I've spent 25 years serving our denomination in prayer. Seven with the North American Mission Board, 18 here in North Carolina. And I can just tell you, I've been all over North America. Churches that were five and six people, churches that were six and 8,000 people. And I'm just telling you, we're not a dependent people on the Lord. We've become more dependent on our resources and we've become more dependent on our education and we've become more dependent on our buildings and our budgets and on ourselves than we have on the Lord. And that's very dangerous. But the first century church was different. And they are our model. And we always go back to the scriptures because the scriptures will show us the kind of dependence that we need to have on the Lord in prayer. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 forward, I, I, you, you, get a, you get a picture in the summary statement here in Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> where, you know, you have these little summary statements throughout the book of Acts, where you get a glimpse into the life of the first century church. I mean, he, it's so wonderful that Luke will give us this, that he will show us this, and he, he helps us to see who they really were. So here in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. In that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Ha, that's a pretty good day. Wouldn't you think? What would happen if you had a day of 3,000 souls being brought to the Lord? I believe you might have a party, right? <laughs> and then you would... You would cry out in desperation, God help us because we don't know what to do. 
right? <laughs> but you look at this and you see this and you say, wow. And then, then you know why. Here's why. And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now here's this great little picture and this glimpse of what God is what, what God is doing among his people and, and their de- great dependence upon him. Uh, and, and you know what it describes to us? And here it is. Here, this is very important. It describes to us that they were taking very serious one thing. You say it was prayer. I said, well, par- prayer is a part of it. What were they taking very serious? They were taking seriously the vital spiritual life in Christ. They gave attention to their spiritual lives. It was foremost in their lives. Look what he says. They continued steadfastly. You know what that means? That means nothing was going to get in the way of this. They were steadfast in the doctrine of God, the apostles' doctrine, the word of God. They were steadfast in fellowship and koinonia. By the way, that's the spirit of God. It's what happens when we fellowship. You know, it's like we have this mindset around fellowship that it's we eat. And then we also have this mindset that when we eat, we talk about NC State or UNC. But that's not what they were doing. The fellowship came in the spirit of God. It's kind of like this. One day I was on an airplane going to the West Coast and it was early. uh, It was pre 9-11, you know, because they served me breakfast, you know, uh, in coach. I was in coach. And so I was uh, there and, and I got ready to bow my head to say a blessing. And about that time, the person next to me, a lady, she was of Asian descent. She was next to me. And then her daughter was in the window. She said, she laid her, she laid her hand on my arm. Now, you know, in an airplane, you just don't get in people's space. And, and the second thing you don't do is you don't touch them if you can avoid it. And so uh, I, I immediately looked over at her and I said, yeah, uh, yes, ma'am, may I help you? She, she had this, oh, I can't describe it. She had this radiant smile on her face. <laughs> and she says, I'm a believer too in Jesus. My daughter too. She says, will you bless our food? And, and I did. And for the next three and a half hours, we had fellowship in the spirit of God. We talked about Jesus the whole time. Now, I didn't know her from Adam's house cat. You ever met Adam's house cat? Yeah, you you wouldn't have known her either from Adam's house cat. But I'm telling you, it was so sweet. The spirit of God was all over us. And we fellowship. And I got off that plane that day and I thought, hmm, one day I'll see her in heaven. I won't ever see her before, I'm sure. But it was because of the spirit of Christ. And our conversation was not surface. 
our conversation was deep about Jesus. That's koinonia. That's biblical koinonia. And then <laughs> the breaking of bread, they did community together. They, they took care of one another. And then in prayers, you know, giving attention to the vital spiritual life involves all those things. The word, the word, it involves the prayers. You got to give attention to it. And this was the people of God. And fear came upon them. You know, I, you know how we know we're, we're not there? People ask me all the time, say, Chris, what's the most important thing? If you had to say one thing to the churches, what would it be? And I would say this to God's people and to the church in America. Give attention, priority, urgent priority to the vital spiritual life in Christ. We better. And, and, and that, at the heart of that is prayer. And, and, I, and people say, well, how do you know we're not doing that? I say, because... The church does not fear God. <laughs> because if we did, our culture would. But we don't. But when we begin to, y'all, I'm telling you, you're talking. The fear of God will sweep this land because God's people have begun to fear him and they care about what he thinks more than they care about what man thinks and so this, the scripture is very clear fear came upon them many signs and wonders and were done through the apostles and all who believed were together and it's verse 46 so continue daily with one accord in the temple you see that word one accord? Take note of that. And bre breaking the bread from house to house, they ate the food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And isn't that interesting? Having favor with all the people. <laughs> God granted them that. That's not something that we, we, uh, we muster up, y'all, because we know somebody. Favor comes from God. And uh, it says, with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Wouldn't it be a beautiful sight? Yes. Yes. And so that's the church. Now, how do, we, how do we know this was the case in the life of the first century church? But look at verse four, chapter 4, verse 13. And uh, we'll stop here in about 10 minutes or so and give you a break. But it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Huh. This is, Peter and John were arrested, of course, because they were preaching. <laughs> and taken before the Sanhedrin in the name of Jesus they proclaimed him and 
they immediately recognized they were untrained, but there was something about them. Number one, they were, <laughs> what? They realized that they had been with Jesus. But they saw the boldness. That's a neat term in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts when you see it. And we're going to look at it here in just a moment in Acts chapter 4. But it's called divine parhesia, divine, uh, divinely anointed speech. Not something you can do because you're trained. It's the Spirit of God. It's, it's like the old preachers used to call oh, that holy unction of God. It's, it's divine boldness. Only God can give it. God anointed speech. And you see, remember, remember the religious leaders, remember what they noticed about Jesus? <laughs> he was different than all the, the teachers because he spoke with what? You see, they begin to notice something about these men that their speech was like Jesus's. And they came to this light bulb conclusion. They had been with Jesus. Do people recognize you've been with Jesus? Now, chapter 4, verse 23, they were led out, told not to preach. What did they do? They went back to their own companions. They told them everything that had happened. Verse 24, and when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. And they said, now look at that little term, one accord. You see that? Used about five, six times uh, to relate to prayer in the book of Acts, used more than that in Acts, but mainly five or six times related to prayer, depending on your translation. But the word, the term itself, describes this, this element of, of prayer that is of one heart and one mind and one passion. And people call it united prayer, but it's more than that. It's, it's under the, 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 the unction of God. It's, it's the kind of praying that takes place as God's people are surrendered to his spirit. And so in one accord prayer, they began to pray. And it's, it's so interesting uh, first of all, they, they focused on the Lord, uh, used the Old Testament in their praying. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? Kings of the earth. Uh, just appealing to the sovereignty and work of God. God the creator. He's despotes, the, 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 the creator and sustainer of all things. 
but in verse 29, you see this, this, these specific prayers that they prayed. Now, Lord, look on their threats, number one. Take note of their threats. In other words, don't ignore what they're doing. They're threatening us. You know? There's <laughs> nothing wrong with us asking for God to help us when people are threatening us. Take note of their threats. And look what he says here. And grant to your servants that they with all boldness. See that little term? You see this train, the trail here, this, this little thread? Jesus spoke with boldness and Peter and John spoke with boldness. And now they're praying for boldness. Divinely anointed speech. God's anointing. That they may speak your word, your word. Not their word. Not a word from the newspapers. Your word. There's been a famine in the land of the word of God, y'all. We must speak the word of God. By stretching out your hand to heal and signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. The manifestation of God's presence and his power among them. And it says in verse 31, I love this. And when they had prayed which means when they finished praying, right? They, they finished. When they had prayed, <laughs> what happened? Well, let's see. When they had prayed. Now, let me just say a word about that. And I'll speak to that in our next session. But it doesn't mean that they just stopped. So think on that. Say law on that, as the Psalter would say. It doesn't mean that they just stopped when they had prayed. The place where they were assembled together was shaken. So you got this manifestation of the presence of God. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with what? Boldness. Boldness. That's right. You notice that thread. What did they ask for? Boldness. Because they wanted to be like Jesus. (laughs) And that's what they did. They asked for it and what did God do? You know why? Because they were dependent. They'd given attention to the vital spiritual life Their lives. I can't give attention to your spiritual life. I can encourage you and I can challenge you and I can try to help you. But I can't can't make it a priority in your life. You'll never know the number of parents through the years as a pastor and as a 
denominational leaders and different churches all over <laughs> that come up to me and say, oh, I, I'm praying for my children. Would you pray with me for them? They're, they're not walking with the Lord. And tears, they're broken over it. And, they, and rightfully so, it breaks your heart. But listen, we are responsible for our vital spiritual life. And I can tell you something. The more attention I give to mine, the more it influences others. And then the scripture says, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God anointed speech became their norm in this moment. This was this, was this anointing. This was this manifest presence of God that was, they were filled with the spirit. Now they had the spirit of God in Acts chapter two. We, read, we know that. But now you had a special manifestation of the spirit of God that came in them and through them and upon them and with them. And they were preaching Jesus. And the scripture says, and now the multitude of those who believe were, uh, don't you love that? Don't you just love that? The multitude of those who believed. <laughs> that means a lot. Now, by the way, Luke will use that term often to describe, he, he didn't, he couldn't count. <laughs> it was a whole lot of people. I wonder if that was his preacher, preacher number, <laughs> Brother Brandon. <laughs> I don't know. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Verse 33, and with great power. Do you see that? The apostles gave witness to the resurrection. You know, here, here we go. Here, here, boy, I tell you what, this will make, this, this, I don't know, y'all, this ought to make you shout. But you just think about it, and, and you think about what it is saying, and with great power, great power, not just power, great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the distinctive of our faith. He's not in that grave. He's alive. Amen. And grace, great grace was upon them all. So they had great power to give witness to the resurrection and great grace was upon them all. That's what happens when God's people become dependent on the Lord in prayer. That's what happens when it's their lifestyle. And that's when God can bring revival the multitude of people. 3,000 souls are added to their number that day. Wouldn't that be great? But you see, we've got to resolve in our hearts that we become dependent people. But it will never happen if we don't give attention to the vital spiritual life of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this session. Teach us to be a dependent people.
upon you, oh Lord. We pray. And we thank you. And we love you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.